of Here I Stand. My name is Stephen Long and I am the voice behind the microphone. And the very first podition we had last week, I just kind of gave an introduction about what to expect on this podcast and some of the things we're going to be talking about. And what I want to do is try to start off each podcast with a kind of a week and watch kind of in the news and see what's going on. And these will be things pertaining especially to Christians and to uh, some of the things and some of the battles that Christians are facing today. So I want to start off by uh, uh, getting you all updated on a story here about Proposition 8. We've been hearing a lot about Proposition 8 and most everybody should be familiar with Proposition 8. If you are not, I will just fill you in briefly on that. Proposition 8 is was a proposition that came up in the November elections in the state of California to ban same-sex marriage and to keep traditional marriage as between one man and one woman. Proposition 8 passed uh, by about 52% of the majority of the voters. And uh, on March the 5th, just a couple of days ago, we uh, see that California is going to begin hearing arguments today in order to try and overturn Proposition 8. Now, uh, Brad Dacus, who's the president of the PJI, the Pacific Justice Institute, states that this is a very, very important hearing because it will determine whether or not democracy in the United States will be upheld and preserved according to what he says. And you know he is absolutely right. The California voters spoke, they had their voice in the November elections, and they voted for Proposition 8. They voted to keep marriage between one man and one woman, and now the homosexual community is in an uproar about it, and they want to kind of do away with it and say that it is unconstitutional in order for them to be denied, quote-unquote, their rights in order to be married. Now, the sad thing about this whole ordeal is that it is even coming up as an issue as unconstitutional since the people themselves have voted for Proposition 8. But with the uh, way the liberal media and the print media is giving attention to Proposition 8 and to the homosexual agenda, I can't really say that I'm not all that surprised. For example, uh, Sean Penn, when he began to accept his uh, 
Oscar for his work in Milk, just recently in the Academy Awards, stated that people who voted for Proposition 8 ought to just be totally ashamed of themselves, and they should not be able to look their children or grandchildren in the eyes without being shameful until all those uh, who voted for Proposition 8 would change their minds and allow the homosexuals to have their rights, because everybody has a right to be married, even if it goes against the traditional values of marriage. So the, the uh, media and the mainstream and the liberals are, uh, are all on the same page. So I'm not really surprised that this is an issue now for America, and this is something that we as Americans have to deal with. Now, what I am concerned about is that if this goes through and the homosexuals get what they want, what's next? I mean, who's to say that somebody won't come to the Supreme Court and challenge them and say, well, hey, I want to marry my dog, or I would love to marry my neighbor's cat. I mean, how far are we as Americans willing to take this? How far are we willing to go in order for the name, you know, quote unquote, for democracy? I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm for democracy, and I believe that people should have the rights, but what I think is happening here is that the homosexuals want to kind of name themselves as a special class of citizens, you know, because they want the right to marry. They begin to gripe and say that their rights are being taken away. What I want to know really is what rights are they being denied? Because if you think about it, they're not really being denied any right that every other American citizens have. They do have a right to marry, but they cannot marry same-sex. So now what they're trying to do is pass a new law that will allow them special citizenship, citizenship, so to speak. So that's kind of the, uh, the problem that I have with this whole overturning of the Proposition 8. Not to mention the fact that the citizens of California have already spoken. They've said, no, we don't want same-sex marriage. 52% of Californians have already said that we want to keep traditional marriage as between one man and one woman. Yet, when a bunch of loudmouths, who are really the minority in this country, speak loud enough, then, you know, the liberal courts and will entertain that. But you know what they say, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. But moving on now to uh, some other news, and uh, this is something that came out on March the 3rd. And now the U.S. is trying to uh, get a bill passed in the House to allocate $900 million to the Gaza Strip. And what they're going to do, supposedly they want to take... 200, uh, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, let me see, how much, how much, 300 million would be earmarked, according to this story here, specifically for humanitarian aid to the region, and of course our good friend Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton, who is now the Secretary of State, is saying that she wants to uh, give this for humanitarian aid because of the victims of the Israeli attacks, and Oh, goodness gracious. It just goes on and on and on. And I'll tell you what. I'm thinking to myself, where's the humanitarian aid for Israel? I mean, if I remember correctly, it was Hamas, a terrorist group, 
that fired specifically first on Israel. But I don't see people in the uh, United States here, especially Miss Clinton, trying to earmark money specifically for Israeli aid. So, I mean, you know, if we want to be fair about it, let's just go ahead and be fair about it. You know, we need to send money to Israel as well. I mean, after all, it was Hamas who uh, started the attack. It was Hamas who was the one that fired rockets over into Israeli territory first. So if we're going to give anybody aid, I think we should uh, give it to Israel instead of giving it to Israel's enemies. And one of the concerns of this uh, by Republicans, thank God we still have some uh, common sense people here is that he is afraid that this money is going to fall into the hands of terrorists and he's exactly right he is exactly right it doesn't matter how careful you are if you send money over there and especially that quantity of money somebody who's not supposed to get it is going to get their hands on it and they're going to use it for another terrorist attack and uh, this is just the way it works and it's just reality and people need to think about these kind of things before they before they do it before they begin to allocate money to these things but of course the Clintons have always kind of been friends with the uh, Arabs anyway and especially more favored over Israel so again that's another story that I'm not surprised about I want to return for a moment uh, back to what I was just saying about Sean Penn and the Oscars and the statement that he made at the Oscars. If you cruise on over to Alpha and Omega Ministries, which is the uh, website for Dr. James White, who is a Christian apologist, his website address is aomen.org. Dr. White recently posted a video in his YouTube account about this very specific thing, and he responded to Sean Penn's comments. Now, a couple of days later, he reposted the video again because YouTube had banned the video saying that it violated copyright laws. Now, one of the things that Dr. White pointed out was the fact that there were about 600 versions or so. Maybe I don't know. Maybe it wasn't that many, but it was several versions, many, many, many versions of the same Sean Penn clip with only a few of them having actual copyrights. But yet, they chose to ban his comments uh, from YouTube. So he reposted the same comments that he had made before, only he took the Sean Penn clip out of it. Uh, I think he was right in saying that just the fact that people are so hostile towards Christianity, any time that somebody speaks out and opposes their views, they are immediately silenced. They are immediately looked at as being bigots. Uh, the media and whoever will do anything they can to shut Christians up and to keep them from responding. And another good thing that uh, Dr. White pointed out was the fact that these people don't want to engage in any kind of debate. They don't want to publicly uh, debate somebody who could really just wipe the floor with them. And, uh, their arguments are illogical. Uh, they know this. They know that they really don't have any kind of ground or basis upon which to stand. So instead of debating, as Dr. White says, they love to monologue and uh, speak very loudly. And then, of course, anybody who disagrees with them, they harshly attack as being bigots, and they try to shut them up. 
I'm telling you, it is very, very scary at which this country is headed, or where this country is headed, and the direction that it's taking. It's extremely scary. But, what can you do? All we can do is, as Christians and believers is just to uh, sit back and trust God. God, no matter what is happening, is still on the throne. He is controlling each and every situation. But enough of that. I want to move on now and kind of get into today's topic. And today I want to talk a little bit about this emerging church kind of thing. It's been popular for the last several years. Uh, you have leaders in the church. Uh, Brian McLaren. I say leaders, but they are actually liberal leaders, and they are kind of uh, the ones who who propel this postmodernism, new Christianity type of emerging church. Uh, guys like Brian McCar uh, McLaren, uh, Rob Bell. Uh, let's see, uh, Dave Paget. All these guys. Uh, I was watching a video this afternoon on YouTube. Brian McLaren. Uh, just flat out denying the doctrine of the atonement, denying the doctrine of hell. Uh, the guy that was interviewing him, I'm not sure the voice. I did not recognize the voice, but the guy that uh, was interviewing him went as far as to say that the cross was actually not central to Christianity, that it was actually a distraction. Man, when I heard that, I was just totally blown away. I mean, I knew these guys were wacky, but I had no idea how wacky they were. But the cross being a distraction. I mean, didn't Paul say that the cross was absolutely central to the gospel? As a matter of fact, Paul said he knew nothing and preached nothing except Christ crucified. That was the only thing that he was determined to preach because it was so central to the cross. The atonement of Christ was central to the Christian faith. Uh, but of course, guys like McLaren and Paget and them really doubt the resurrection as well. And they're kind of basically along the same lines as Bart Ehrman. So, I mean, there's no surprise there. But it's still, to say something is meaningless as the cross is a distraction. I mean, how can you even call yourself a Christian without the cross? Basically, they're taking Christ out of Christianity and just forming their own Christianity. But again, this is, uh, this is something that's, you know, indicative of our times. This is something indicative of the last times that are going on now. We know that pretty soon that Christ is going to be coming back. We know that Christ is going to judge, come back to judge the living and the dead, and I'm just thankful that Christ says in John chapter 10 that he knows his sheep. His sheep know him, and he knows his sheep. He calls them, they follow them. Uh, but these emerging church guys, they really, really just kind of uh, irritate me, I guess, more than anything, and I really get upset when I listen to them, and I guess I shouldn't, but you know, it really gets my emotions kind of upset to hear guys like McLaren and, and Rob Rob Bell and just the way they speak. One example is uh, comes from the Christian Research Institute who is head up by Hank Hanegraaff and he did an article uh, kind of about the emerging church and one of the things that he does is he 
quotes Bell as saying that. Uh, oh, let me let me find the statement here. Oh, okay. Rob Bell says that if Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry, an archaeologist find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing that we would not lose any significant part of our faith because it is more about how we live. Now, Hanegraaff goes on to say that Rob Bell does not overtly... Uh, deny the virgin birth, but he does say that it's not an integral part of the Christian faith. Again, I don't know how these guys can claim this. The whole point of Jesus being born of a virgin was to not have Adam's sinful nature. So if Jesus was not born of a virgin, it would open up a whole other can of implications, uh, i.e. the atonement, the resurrection, the... <laughs> You know, I mean, you just got a whole lot of problems when you begin to deny the virgin birth. The virgin birth is an integral part of the Christian faith. I mean, according to the scriptures, the sacrifice, the lamb had to be perfect, had to be spotless. And Jesus was, as John the Baptist called him, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world meaning that he was spotless, he was sinless, he was perfect, he had no fault in him. Uh, we're told this uh, first uh, in Peter. Peter tells us that Jesus was a spotless lamb foreknown by the Father from the foundation of the earth. Hebrews goes on to tell us that he was a high priest who was tempted in every way that we were, but yet was without sin. And the reason why it could be this way was because Christ did have a human nature. He was 100% human, but he was also 100% God. But yet, he did not inherit Adam's sinful nature because of the virgin birth. So the virgin birth is an extremely integral part of the Christian faith. And guys like Bell and McLaren and Paget and other guys who may deny this are really absolutely off the rockers because they have really have no right to call themselves Christians if that's what they're saying, if this is what they're denying. Now, some of the theology of these emergent leaders is really kind of baffling when you think about it. Uh, for instance, if you go to Rob Bell's uh, website, MarsHill.org, uh, he has things in here that uh, I guess I guess it's kind of supposed to be his theology and what he believes and. One of the things he says is, and I'm reading directly from his site here, we affirm the central truths of historic Orthodox Christian faith. Seeing ourselves in a long line of generations taking part in the endless conversation between God and people, we believe the Bible to be the voices of many who have come before us, inspired by God to pass along their poems, stories, accounts, and letters of response and relationship with each other and the living God. To know where we're going, we have to know where we've been. Now that sounds all fine and lovely, but what about the infallibility of Scripture? What about the inerrancy of the original writings? And uh, same thing about so-called salvation. Uh, he has under here, we have great confidence that God will restore all of creation under the authority of Christ. We believe that every church has to ask the question, what does it look like for us to live out the future reality of today? 
we are constantly exploring, questioning, and wrestling with new and creative ways to live out and communicate the teachings of Jesus because we see faith as a journey, change is assumed, innovation is expected, and rebirth is welcome. Okay, uh, what about redemption? What about the atonement? What about sin? What about denying self? What about taking up the cross and following Jesus as a part of that faith? Uh, you know, as I'm sitting here reading directly from his website here, I don't see really anything that's orthodox about what he believes, yet he claims at the very beginning that it is orthodox Christianity. Uh, it's, uh, like I said, it's very baffling. It's very baffling to see these guys say stuff, and, and, you know, these doctrines here are so, the doctrinal statement, if, again, if that's what you can call it, is just so vague, you can't really pinpoint anything down, but you know what, that's just a tactic and a ploy that all of these emerging guys use. They are so vague in what they say, and everything is so generalized that, unless you ask very specific questions about their doctrines and about their theology, you will never really pin down exactly what they believe. But a part of that is because of their post-modernism thinking. You know, hey, truth is relative. Well, I believe in Christianity and I have the orthodox faith. But if you have another truth, it's just as good. And I'm not going to deny that your truth is as good as mine. Now, I'm sorry, folks, but Jesus specifically stated that, number one, that he was the only way to get to the Father, and number two, that truth would set the people free. Jesus never, ever claimed any other truth except himself. He never claimed any other way to get to the Father except by him. And as harsh as it sounds to say, that means that anybody who doesn't place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is not truly a Christian, and therefore will be judged as a non-believer and receive the penalty of eternal condemnation. Now, I know that uh, uh, McLaren, guys like McLaren and Paget would certainly disagree with me, but hey, you know, if you want to toss the entire Bible out, you want to toss half of the Gospel of John out, and several parts of Matthew and Luke and Revelation, then I guess it's just that's just what you're going to have to do in order to uh, to validate your own beliefs. Uh, a, a few years ago, I guess it's been about three or four years ago, is when I really first heard about Rob Bell, and, and the name just kind of popped up, and I heard a lot of different people talking about Rob Bell, and I actually went on his website and I read the statement. Uh, those doctrinal statements that I just read, and I didn't see anything about salvation or condemnation or redemption, and so I actually wrote Rob Bell in an email, and uh, a couple of days later I got a response from somebody who uh, I guess was like a spokesman or a representative of the ministry, and writing me back and basically telling me that they believed that there really was no hell because when Jesus died, he redeemed all of mankind. Uh, I wrote him back and quoted him several scriptures, and the response I got back was rather a scolding. And how this who this guy sat there and told me that he had been under Rob Bell's teaching for so many years, and that uh, I would do well to 
listen rather than accuse and condemn. And really, my belief was, uh, not my belief, I'm sorry, but my intention of writing that was just to really honestly inquire about what he believed, and that was the kind of response I got back. And I tell you, I really, really wish I would have kept that email now. It would have been very handy uh, for this podcast, and I could have read it so that you would see what kind of responses that I got. I want to move on to another area now, and uh, just because it deals with the church, and it deals with uh, the way the evangelical church in America is going, and uh, that's these health and wealth prosperity teachers. Okay, so I'm not just going to pick on the emergent guys today, I'm also going to uh, take a shot at these health and wealth prosperity teachers. Uh, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, uh, Frederick Price, uh, T.D. Jakes, uh, who else? Oh, a lot of them. There's just a number of them out there. And I can just give you advice. Stay away from them. If you want good, sound, biblical theology, and you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, Stay away from those guys, because they are poison. They do not speak the truth. The only thing they are saying is that Jesus wants you to be healthy. Jesus wants you to prosper. Jesus wants you to be rich. And some of them are going as far as saying that uh, Jesus himself was really rich, and his disciples were really rich. Some of them will claim that Jesus lived in a big old house and wore fancy clothes and just had all this money, and uh, his disciples were rich too. Well, you know, I think of passages like uh, Matthew eight twenty, where Jesus says, you know, a, a scribe comes up to him and says, Oh, teacher, I'll follow you everywhere. I'll go wherever you go. And Jesus' response is, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Not to mention the fact that Jesus taught that those who would follow him in Luke chapter 14, the discourse there that... Uh, Whoever does not forsake everything he has cannot be my disciple. Uh, it seems that these prosperity and health and wealth teachers don't like verses like that. They won't quote them uh, to their audience because they want their audience to send them stuff, to send them money. And this is the way that they get around. Uh, Kenneth Copeland lately has been in the news for this supposedly $20 million jet that he was going to use for ministry purposes only. And a news story caught him flying to places like Fiji and Maui and some snow resort and Colorado ski resort and uh, places, uh, some kind of a place in Texas where they hunt wild game. And, of course, he would deny an interview when he was asked if he would give an interview about uh, why he was using the jet that way and uh, the news channel asked him if they would provide if he would provide them with statements on how he was using his jet and of course he denied saying that well we don't have to because we're a church and by law churches don't have to provide that information so he did not so uh, you got guys out there that are teaching wealth and prosperity they're teaching you that the only thing Jesus desires is for you to be rich and then when it doesn't happen guess what it's your fault it's because you didn't have enough faith and I tell you what I again it's just 
it probably angers me more than anything else. I, I can't imagine why people would not want to read the Bible for themselves. Why they would just take somebody's word, face value, and go along with it. But then again, we're told why. It's because their itching ears want to hear. Their itching ears want to hear about health and prosperity. They don't want to hear about uh, the problem is your sin. Your sin separated you from your God, as Isaiah chapter uh, 59, I believe, says. They don't want to hear about that stuff. All they want to hear is that how much Jesus loves them and how much Jesus will accept them. And if you just come to Jesus any way you are, you're good to go. Well, what about sacrifice? What about taking up your cross? What about uh, all those who wish to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? Not maybe, not could be, but will be persecuted. I mean, it is a fact. Anyone who takes a stand for Christ right now, in this day, and in this age, and especially amidst all the political things going on with the homosexual agenda and uh, amongst the emergent church and amongst the popular opinion of Christianity. Anyone who takes a stand against that is looked at as being a religious bigot. A person who only wants to make God into some kind of a cosmic bully ready to smash and condemn people. Well, sorry, but, you know, hey, truth is truth. And we cannot compromise the truth in order to tickle people's ears. God is very clear about that. Christ was very clear about the instructions that he leaves those that he appoints as under-shepherds of his flock. They are to feed his sheep. Feeding his sheep requires knowing how to handle the word of God, how to handle it accurately, how to exposit it, how to break it down, how to teach it. And I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, health and wealth and prosperity is not a part of that teaching. I mean, that is just that is just fact. There are numerous passages in the Bible that speak of truly, really, about what a Christian should be and how a Christian should live. And, uh, sorry, but I don't see prosperity as one of Jesus' uh, promises and blessings upon an individual who follows him. As a matter of fact, I see the opposite. For example, in Matthew, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 10, verse 30, uh, if you remember, Peter comes to Christ and he says, Well, Lord, we left everything for you. What are we going to receive? And Christ's answer is, uh, Hey, whoever's left, you know, houses and land and, you know, wives and children, will they not receive a hundredfold now in this time? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So, is Jesus really advocating a prosperity there? Because a lot of prosperity teachers use this verse to kind of prove that if you follow Jesus, then you'll have a lot of wealth and a lot of blessings. But they're really missing the entire point of what Christ is saying. Peter and the other apostles had left everything in order to follow Jesus. Now, we know Peter had a wife. We don't know how many of the other guys had a wife, wives. But uh, the fact is, is, is that they had denied themselves these earthly pleasures in order to travel around with Jesus around the country and 
preach the gospel there. And so Jesus was saying, because you made that sacrifice, you'll be repaid. But with it will come persecutions. But the ultimate outcome will be eternal life. So the focus is not on what we're going to receive in this life. The focus is what we're going to receive in the next life. Another tremendous example is Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, everybody knows Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Well, a lot of people quote that and don't realize the context of that. And what Paul is saying is that Paul, for the sake of the gospel, has been in just about every kind of situation that a person can be in. And listen to what he says here. He says, he says uh, I've learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul's statement there is the fact that as a follower of Jesus, he faced famine. Uh, he faced persecution. He faced hunger. There were times when he had plenty. But, for the most part, he faced uh, all these things for the sake of Christ. He faced being poor, not having anything, just for the sake of following Christ. I mean, listen to this description that Paul gives of his experiences here in 2 Corinthians, beginning at uh, chapter 11, verse 24. Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, I don't know about you, but it sure didn't sound like that Paul was having the time of his life going around preaching the gospel. didn't sound like that God was pouring out prosperity and wealth and health on Paul. As a matter of fact, Paul says he was exposed to the cold. Uh, hey, when you get exposed to the cold, you get sick, right? He says he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was in the wilderness, uh, he was in danger from robbers. But wait a minute, surely God wants to bless those who follow him, right? God would never let somebody get robbed because they're a Christian. I mean, God would never let somebody go hungry because they were a Christian. God wouldn't let somebody go thirsty because they're a Christian. I mean, isn't that what these guys like Copeland and Cruffalo Dollar and Price and George Meyer and all these other people out there are teaching you? Well, if that's what you're hearing, then I suggest that you uh, tune the TV out and get into some real preaching. Uh, preaching like John MacArthur, John Piper, uh, Dr. White, uh, uh, Sproul, all kinds of great, wonderful teachers out there who can really, really give it to you straight. But do not buy the lie that God's will for every single Christian is to be prosperous and to be wealthy and to be healthy and never to have any kind of problems within this life. Uh, again, one last example before I 
knock this podcast off is Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, listen to the description here of God's servants. It says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, talking about release from prison, so that they might, I'm sorry, uh, actually referring to the release of, uh, uh, of being tortured. Uh, excuse me, but some, it says some are tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now one of the things that stood out to me there was the word destitute. They wandered about destitute. Is this what Christianity is about? Yes. Now, does that mean that every single Christian is going to be destitute? No, it does not mean that. But it also does not mean that God is willing that every single Christian and desires that every single Christian have prosperity and wealth and health. And certainly, there are, I'm sure that there are some believers out there that God has blessed financially. And that's okay, because God is the one who controls who gets what, and who gets uh, what kind of money, what kind of houses. But God is also in control of the ones that he brings suffering into their lives. And eventually, all Christians, whether they are monetarily blessed or not, will endure some type of suffering. Uh, there's no Christian, real true Christian believer I've ever met that has not endured some kind of suffering within their lives. I mean, it is just a part of God's method of shaping us. It is a part of God's method of bringing us into glory. As a matter of fact, again, Paul says, through many hardships, we enter into the kingdom of heaven. So I have spent the last 38 minutes or so grinding my axe. And so I'm going to kind of knock it off there. I certainly hope you have a great week and look forward to uh, talking to you again next week. If you have any comments or questions that you would like to ask me, please feel free to use my email. It is hereistand.podcast at gmail.com. I will respond to you as quickly and as timely as I possibly can. It may be a tight response or it may be in a podcast response. So listen out or check your email or your inbox for any questions that you might have that I'll respond to. Thank you very much and have a great week.